God, I pray that you would continue to draw people to yourself through the ministry of this church. I thank you for the new families that have joined us in the last number of weeks and months, and I pray that they would find a place here where they can grow in the Lord and use their gifts. As we review the doctrine of election, I pray that you would give me a clear mind, especially as we transition to the question and answer period. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand this doctrine, and I pray that you would help us to embrace this doctrine, even while our heart may, may ache for those who reject Christ. So God, we, we invite you to help us in the moments ahead as we review Romans 9 through 11. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Romans can be divided into two halves, right? Romans 1 through 11 and then 12 through 16. In Romans 1 through 11, you have all the doctrine that we need to know. And then in chapters 12 through 16, you have uh, exhortation. In light of the things that we believe, this is how we ought to behave. Now, in the, in the first half, chapters 1 through 11, you can even divide those into smaller groups. You have chapters 1 through 8, which are the doctrines of salvation. So the wrath of God and the propitiation of God, justification by grace through faith, sanctification, being be made new in Christ, and glorification, the hope of future resurrection from the dead where we will be physically like Christ and live forever. Then we get to chapters 9 through 11, which are the chapters that deal with the doctrine of election. And for the last number of months, we've been in these three chapters. And, and these are not easy chapters, as we have discovered. And going through these chapters has required much of you. The sermons have gotten longer and longer. Uh, they've become more and more challenging to dig into, both intellectually and emotionally. But, but these are so important that we grasp the concepts. These chapters begin with Paul's emotional response to what he's about to teach us. So I want to review that to start in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. So this is Paul reflecting emotionally on the doctrine of election. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is quite an intro to these chapters. We're clearly starting into something new from chapters 1 through 8. Paul's heart is broken. He has great anguish and deep, unending grief. He says here that he would if it was possible, wish that he himself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, that is, Israelites, the Jews. Translation, he says, I would go to hell if I could so that everyone else could go to heaven. 
So, so we know what we're about to read is deep and difficult, right? So if you've struggled emotionally with the doctrine of election, you're in good company. Paul himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, struggled emotionally with these truths. Want to review what these truths are. What was it that gave Paul such anguish? What was it that was so heart-wrenching for him? What was it that made him say, As God is my witness, both Christ and the Holy Spirit, my conscience declares that I would go to hell if everyone else could go to heaven. What is this truth that would elicit such an introduction by the Apostle Paul? Well, I've tried to summarize what we've done in the last two months in eight summarizing statements. Let's take a look at them. Summarizing statement number one, Paul will go on to say that God elected Israel. What we learn here is uh, the doctrine of election begins with what's called corporate election, that God chooses groups. He chose the group, the nation of Israel, in a way that he has never, ever chosen any other group. There's no other nation in the history of the world that God has chosen the way he has chosen Israel. And what did he choose Israel for? Well, Paul says it there. To them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In other words, if I could summarize all of that, God has revealed Himself to the world through the nation of Israel. He has made unconditional promises to the nation of Israel that through Israel He would save the world. Salvation comes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. We're going to be using Jew and Gentile language a lot. Gentiles means non-Jews. So you're either a Jew or you're not a Jew. And if you're not a Jew, then you're a Gentile. Salvation for the world starts with the Jews. God saved the Jews by choosing Israel first. So God has chosen Israel in a way that he has not chosen any other nation. He has not entered into covenant with any other nation the way he has entered into covenant with Israel. And he has given them unconditional promises. The nation of Israel will survive forever. And they will have a king, and the king of the Jews is the king of the world. Summarizing statement number two, however, says that God has not elected every Israelite for personal salvation. In fact, God has elected only a remnant of Israelites to be saved. What does this mean? This means although the nation as a corporate entity will be saved, although the nation is the means by which God will save the world, although God has made unconditional promises with the nation, not every individual Israelite will share in the fullness of personal salvation, which includes forgiveness from sins, propitiation, that is God's wrath satisfied, justification, that is to be in right standing with God, to be declared righteous and not guilty, to be sanctified, that is to be born again, to have a transformed nature, and to be glorified, to be raised from the dead. Not every Jew will enjoy propitiation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Not every Jew will be eternally raised from the dead for glory. And so there's a remnant within the nation 
of individuals who have been elected by God, chosen by God to share in the unconditional blessings that God has given to the nation. Not every Israelite will receive the corporate blessings unconditionally promised to the nation of Israel. What about Gentiles? So far, we haven't even dealt with us if, if you're a non-Jew. Well, summarizing statement number three is that God has individually elected some Gentiles, but not all. There is no nation apart from Israel that God has entered into covenant with for salvation. So whatever nation you come from, if it's not Israel, you have no hope in your national identity. There, there is no hope for you before the righteous God of the world, of the universe, of all reality, because of your ethnic heritage. Every nation will fall. Every nation will be judged by God. That's a, a, a gospel truth. That's a biblical truth that we see through all of the prophets. The only nation to stand intact at the end is the nation of Israel. But God is saving for himself a people from every tribe and language, nation and people. How does he do that? Well, he individually elects. He individually chooses. He individually saves Gentile believers from every age. Now, Gentile Christians do not replace Israel. We're going to get to this in a summarizing statement further down. But this is the way we want, want to think about this. If you're a Gentile and you have been individually elected for salvation, if God has chosen to save you, He's given you new birth, then you are then adopted into Abraham's family. You're adopted into the remnant of Israel to share in the unconditional promises and blessings given to the nation of Israel that will be enjoyed by the remnant of Israel. And so as Gentiles, we do not come in and say, God is done with Israel. Move over for the Gentile church. We recognize that as Gentiles, we've been adopted into the remnant of Israelites who will be saved. We'll, get, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Now at this point, we have to ask the question, which is summarized in statement number four, how, how can this be? This doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem fair. That's because it's not fair. The doctrine of election is not fair, but it is just. In order to understand what I mean by this, we have to define what do we mean by justice and what do we mean by fairness. Justice is a merit-based reward and punishment system. In other words, based on your behavior, justice requires that you are either blessed or cursed, that you are either punished or rewarded. So justice would take an inventory of your life, everything that you've ever thought, everything that you've ever said, everything that you've ever done, and justice would say, let us find a verdict for this life. And justice therefore declares that at the end of every one of our lives, we will be found guilty of sin before a righteous and holy God. So the doctrine of election is just. There are no innocent people who are unjustly condemned by God. It's impossible. A just and righteous God would not condemn innocent people. So we have to, we have to start there. 
Everyone merits eternal punishment. The default destination of the human race since Adam is not heaven. The default destination for the human race ever since Adam sinned was hell. Therefore, we, we need God to do something to, re, to reverse, to, to, to save us from the default destination. Because the way the world thinks is, unless I do something really bad, something really disqualifying, I'm going to heaven. But it's the exact opposite. Unless God saves us, we're all going to hell. It's a really difficult concept. Unless the Holy Spirit helps you to see that, that's impossible to embrace. We're hardwired to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. By Christ, God elects to have mercy and compassion on some. This is where the love and the justice of God meet. You see, all of my sins, I'll use myself as an example, all of my sins must be punished based on the justice of God. So I have two options. Either I face the judgment of God myself before His judgment throne, or I give my sin to Jesus and He receives the justice that I deserve on the cross. Those are your two options. Either you die for your own sins eternally or you let Jesus die for your sins on the cross. But justice will fall against all of our sins. But God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. And what that means is He has elected to remove the sin from some people by His grace according to our faith, which is a gift given to us by God, and He puts our sins in Jesus Christ and He dies in our place. The justice of God is met with the love of God. So election is just. Our sins are dealt with. They're not just swept under the covers or under the carpet. But election is not fair because fairness means that everyone is treated the same. Could God have elected to save everyone? Yes, he could. That's a, that's a false doctrine called universalism. The Bible does not teach universalism, universalism in that sense, meaning that every individual will be saved, but God could have elected to do that, but he didn't. Therefore, the doctrine of election is not fair. Not every human being that has been born into this world will be treated by God the same. God will have mercy on some and not others. He'll have compassion on some and not others. He is not going to condemn anyone who does not deserve to be condemned. There are no innocent people who receive the wrath of God. But God has elected not to remove His wrath from some people. Election is not fair. This is where it gets emotionally difficult. Moving on to summarizing statement number five. Election, though, requires evangelism. This is a big question that we have. If, if God chooses, if God elects some and not others, if it's, it's up to God, God will decide who He's going to have mercy on. God decides who He will have compassion on. God decides who He gives the gift of faith so that by exercising that faith, certain elect individuals can... Uh, uh, unlock and unwrap the grace of God for salvation. God chooses that. It's not according to our works. It's not according to our will. It's God's prerogative to choose to whom He gives this. 
Therefore, well, why do we do anything? Let's just let the elect be the elect. The elect will come to faith on their own. Why do we have to do anything? But it's really clear in Romans chapter 10. If, if Romans 9 is all about God's sovereignty, God's choice, God is in control, it's God's election, Romans 10 flips that and says, in light of the doctrine of election, get out there and share the gospel. We say, well, why? And the answer that we get in Romans 10 is because we are God's elected means through which He will save the elect. Anyone, let me just read it for you. Actually, I was going to quote it, but let me just read it so I get it exactly right. Romans 10, verses 13 to 15. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no one who calls out for God's mercy and grace that God will not save. How will they call on Him if they've never believed? And how are they going to believe in Him if they've never heard of Him? And how are they going to hear about Him unless somebody preaches to them about Him? And how are they going to preach if they're not sent? Oh, how beautiful it is, the feet of those who preach the Gospel. So, right in the foundation, in the fabric of the doctrine of election is this idea that we need to go out and share the Gospel. Well, how does this make sense? Well, in the same way that Jesus had to come and actually die, the means of our salvation is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He couldn't say to the Father, well, you've elected to save some, therefore I'm not going to come to heaven or come to earth and die. In the same way, we are the extension of Christ's work. Uh, God has elected to save us through the actual incarnation, perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And an extension of that is through our proclamation of that historical fact that Jesus came. So God doesn't just say, I'm going to save some and nothing needs to be done. We are the means through which God's eternal purposes are established. And so God elects to save us through the preaching of the Gospel. We have to hear the Gospel. The Holy Spirit delivers the Gospel and and we believe. And when we believe, we call out in faith for the grace of God and we are saved. And so, in fact, the doctrine of election takes the pressure off our performance we don't save anyone we go out there and we declare the gospel but we're not saving anyone we are sowing seeds and the good news is this no matter how proficient or how much you lack proficiency in your declaration of the gospel no matter how how good or bad you are in other words in declaring the gospel god will take your your preaching of the gospel And miraculously, by His Holy Spirit, He will minister salvation in the hearts of the elect. So you remember Jesus talked about the parable of the seed, the sower and the seed. Jesus was facing great resistance and persecution, and His disciples were saying, what's going on? Like, I thought that this was going to be a triumphal um, uh, establishment of the kingdom of God, and and people hate us, and, and people are not coming to faith, and people are resisting you, and Jesus gives them this parable in response. Don't worry about it. Our job is just to sow the seed. The seed, being the gospel, will fall on all different kinds of soil, but if it falls on good soil, it will produce a harvest. 
The elect is the good soil. You, you share the gospel indiscriminately on, on the stony path and on the thorny uh, fields, on, on, the, on the shallow soil and on the good soil. And when the seed lands in the good soil, that person will come to faith. No matter how good or bad you are at sharing the gospel. And so it's not about us. The pressure's off. All God says to us is go and share the gospel. I'll take care of the rest. And the elect will hear it and they'll be saved by it. You know, I've heard so many stories of people that you would not believe how I came to faith. It was the worst gospel presentation and I came to faith. Because that's the power of God. And so we go out as God's evangelists. Summarizing statement number six God's rejection of Israel is partial. So ever since Jesus came, many Jews have rejected him as their Messiah, but not all. In every generation, there has been a remnant of Jews who have embraced Jesus of Nazareth as the Jewish Messiah, the King of Israel, and they've been saved from Paul all the way to this present day. There has never been a generation without a remnant of Jews coming to faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And therefore, at the beginning, we know that God has partially rejected Israel for a time. But there's always been a remnant of Israel who has been saved and folded into the church. The next summarizing statement goes along with that. God's rejection of Israel is temporary. And what we learn is that ultimately... God is going to save all Israel. What does this mean exactly? Well, for a time, well, let me, let me back up. In the Old Testament age, God's focus was on Israel. God, God was working in the world salvifically through nation of Israel. Now, some individual Gentiles were being saved through Israel's witness. You think of Ruth, think of Rahab, think of a few others. Those seem to be the two that always come to my mind. But, so there's, there's a few Gentiles being saved, but not many. God's salvific focus was on Israel. Now Jesus comes, and most of Israel rejects him. So there's still a remnant that receives him as the Messiah, but most of them reject. And so we're in that period of time now where there's just a remnant. There's more Gentiles than Jews in the church. But we're told in Romans 11 and then in other places of Scripture, before the end of history, God's focus will be redirected to the nation of Israel. After the full number of the Gentiles has come in, God will look back to his nation Israel. And right before the end of history, the nation of Israel will convert en masse to Christianity. And the nation itself will become a Christian nation. Israel will remain Israel, but Israel will become Christian. And so before the end of history, all Israel will be saved. There's a lot of debate about what is this all Israel. My understanding of all Israel is that in a particular point in time, that is, right before the curtain of history falls, right before the end, perhaps even as Christ is in the process of returning, could be that near the end, the nation of Israel will look on the one whom they have pierced, which is Jesus Christ, and be saved. What I understand by that is every Jew alive at that time will convert and be saved. So that you have, before the end of history, the nation of Israel for the first time in Israel's history with full salvation, where individual salvation and corporate salvation will equal one another. 
that's never happened that will happen before the end. That's all Israel being saved. Which brings us to our last summarizing statement. The church does not replace Israel. I have a series of slides here. This is, I think, the way a lot of Christians think about the relationship between Israel and the church. So you have, you have a small fish, which is Israel. They might have swallowed up the Jebusites. I just put them in there because they controlled Jerusalem. David took them over. I don't know where the Jebusites are, but it looks like David and Israel swallowed them up. But then we think that the big bad church, well, we wouldn't say it that way, the, the, the big wonderful church is going to come and swallow up Israel like a bigger fish. That's not what the Bible teaches. The church does not replace Israel the way a bigger fish eats a smaller fish. Go to the next slide. Oh yeah, so this is not the way. Just want to make that clear. <laughs> I want you to think more this way. Um, so if you remember what we're talking about, there's Israel, and then there's a remnant within Israel. So the remnant are those Israelites through every age that has been saved. Not every Israelite has been saved. The church, or sort of the, first of all, you have Gentiles who are adopted into the remnant. Gentiles are simply, uh, or Gentile believers are simply non-Jews who are individually elected for salvation. This is true in the Old Testament, Ruth and Rahab, to use my two favorites, Gentile believers in the Old Testament. They were adopted into the remnant of saved individuals. And in the church age, the number of Gentiles has grown so that the remnant has grown with non-Jews to the point where the remnant almost looks like it's entirely Gentile. There's very few Jews in the remnant in the last 2,000 years. There's some, but not as many as Gentiles. But this is a better way of understanding the church. The church is the remnant of individually saved people since the coming of Christ. So we are inside Israel. We're adopted into Israel. And the church then, if you want to think of it not as a distinct entity from Israel, but temporally, there's continuity. We are the remnant of Israel after the coming of Christ. And so the church, the best image of this is found in, in Romans 11, which is the olive tree, right? The olive tree grows, and the church are those branches, both natural and grafted in, natural being the Jews, and grafted in branches, Gentiles, who are cut off of wild olive trees and grafted into the natural olive tree. We, the church are the branches that have grown since the coming of Christ. It's a temporal distinction. So you have Jewish and Gentile branches that have grown since Jesus has come. That's the church. So there's, there's a distinction, a temporal distinction with the nation of Israel from Old Testament age, but ontologically, that is in the very makeup of what the church is, we are just the, the, the blossoming and the growing of the nation of Israel after the coming of Christ. After all of this, Paul concludes. So remember how Paul started, right? With his heartache. But after this, Paul says, this is how he concludes. So we talked about how he started teaching us about election. My heart is broken. I'd go to hell if I could for those who are not personally elect. But after teaching us all about these things, he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be glory forever. Amen. So with the doctrine of election, we want to grieve for those who are not elect, but we want to rejoice in in how unscrupulous are God's ways. That God has found a way to save some of Jews and Gentiles and to bring maximum glory to his name, all the while never compromising his justice, never condemning an innocent person, but lavishing the world, both Jews and Gentiles, people from every nation and people group, with his mercy and his compassion, his love and his salvation unto eternal life. Let me just pray for us and then we'll take some time to ask and to answer hopefully some questions. Let me pray. God, I pray that you would help us to understand these things and help us to embrace these things, even while our heart breaks for those who have rejected Christ. I pray that you would give me clarity of mind and speech as I seek to answer whatever questions may be lingering. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.